Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want it, young man, and you got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got Hello friends Welcome to episode 4 Of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast I'm Christian Swain Behind the mic in San Francisco Our first three episodes Can be taken together A suite or a trilogy. We talked about the early post-war era in America, the social and political climate, and of course, the musical precursors of rock and roll. And without doubt, we left out important parts of the story. Sometimes we made a judgment call about what was most important. Other times we just plain missed it. The good news, we can always come back and fix it. So we welcome your comments on what we've discussed so far. If you think we've missed something big, well, let's talk about it. You can send your critiques and your questions, and we don't mind the occasional unhinged rant to rockandrollarchaeology.com, where you can dig up more details on this episode, including the show notes and songs played. We are releasing episode four a week early, as the demand has been great, and we are thrilled that you are enjoying this podcast as much as we love doing it. We need you, the original diggers of rock and roll archaeology, to tell us your stories and give us your feedback. Find us on facebook.com backslash the RNRAP and follow us on Twitter at RNR Archaeology. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, and all the places you can find great podcasts. And we want to give away a copy of Sam Phillips' The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll, the new book by Peter Grolnick. Between now and our next episode, we are going to randomly select any of you diggers who subscribe and review the podcast or who share it with their friends on social media. We will collect the data and announce the winner when episode five drops in a few weeks. 
Beneath the seemingly placid surface of American life in the early 50s, we found powerful social and cultural undercurrents. We sensed hints and foreshadows of what was to come. And in the middle of that decade, rock and roll was born. On the radio and TV airwaves, on a million jukeboxes, at drive-in movies and high school hops, it was the unruly bastard child of country and blues, born into hard times, raised in the rural South, educated on the mean streets of Memphis and Chicago. American teens adopted this bastard kid, and things started moving fast. As it turns out, too fast to last. Elvis Presley did the Ed Sullivan Show in September of 1956. Buddy Holly's plane went down in Iowa less than two and a half years later. By the middle of 1959, more than a few are proclaiming that rock and roll is dead. It sure doesn't look good. As 1959 turns to 1960, just about all the big players are off stage. Buddy's dead, Elvis is in the army, Little Richard is pounding the pulpit somewhere, Jerry Lee Lewis has been laid low by a shitstorm of scandal and bad publicity, and as we shall see very shortly, Chuck Berry and Alan Freed are both headed for big trouble with the law. We skid perilously into a new decade. Let's get to it right now. This is episode four, The Change of the Guard. Under arrest for transporting a minor across state lines. I did not. I did not touch. First of all. We open in an interrogation room at the 9th Police District Station in the Lucas Heights neighborhood of St. Louis, Missouri. It's early in the morning, December 22nd, 1959. FBI Special Agents Paul Stombo and Edward Moreland are questioning Chuck Berry, and a federal arrest warrant is issued for violations of the Mann Act, a federal law prohibiting the transport of minors across state lines for quote, immoral purposes, unquote. Bruce Pegg, author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Times of Chuck Berry, takes up the tale. On the morning of December 1st, while they made their way along the West Texas highways from Lubbock to El Paso, a young woman named Janice Noreen Escalante was waking up in the El Paso jail. She was quite familiar with her surroundings. She'd been arrested by the El Paso police twice before, for vagrancy and prostitution. Upon her release, she made her way over the Rio Grande Bridge to Juarez, Mexico, where she spent the afternoon drinking at the Savoy. She was 14 and ready for adventure. Long story short, Janice took up with Chuck and the boys as the tour worked its way back to St. Louis. In testimony and in his 2001 autobiography, Chuck insisted that he never had sex with Janice and that he was trying to help her get out of the life by offering her a job at his bandstand club as a hat check girl. She did lie about her age. That was established by multiple witnesses in sworn testimony. 
and Janice was lazy and flaky. The job at the bandstand club didn't work out at all. After a week, Chuck got fed up, cut her loose, and bought her a bus ticket back to El Paso. That's when she called the St. Louis police, who promptly brought in the FBI. This was the second time Chuck had run afoul of the Mann Act. In 1958, 17-year-old Joan Mathis was riding with Chuck when he got a flat on I-94 outside St. Louis. And a police cruiser rolled up. A search of the car produced a 25 caliber pistol. Chuck beat the rap. Well, mostly. Joan steadfastly refused to cooperate, so U.S. Attorney Frederick Mayer called a conference. He told Chuck the statute of limitations gave him free reign to refile at any time in the next seven years. Chuck got off with some traffic fines and a warning for the time being. This time, Mayer had a cooperative witness in Janice Escalante. In January of 1960, he filed charges on the two old felonies and a new charge under the Mann Act. Chuck Berry was looking at two federal trials on multiple felonies, potentially 20 years in prison. The trial on the latter case, Janice Escalante, came first. On Leap Day, February 29, 1960, at the 11th District Federal Court in St. Louis. The judge was George H. Moore, whose old-school decorum and courtly manners only partially covered up his deep, abiding racism. The jury was 12 white men. In his bio of Chuck, Bruce Pegg shows convincingly that while the deck was stacked, Chuck did himself no favors when he testified in his own defense. He rambled and evaded, gave multiple contradictory explanations for things. He came across as a guy with something to hide. It did not end well. After just 15 minutes of deliberations, the jury brought in a guilty verdict and Judge Moore gave Chuck the maximum. Five years in prison. Now, my own take, I'm not a prude or a moralizer, far from it, but the whole bit with Janice Escalante has some real knucklehead stuff. Horribly bad judgment on Chuck's part. He definitely stepped in it. But it's not the kind of thing you put a man in prison for. Uh, the temper of the times, an outdated law, an overzealous prosecutor, and a racist judge all combined to unjustly put the screws to Chuck. Despair turned to elation for Chuck within a few months. Judge Moore's obvious racism throughout the trial got the conviction overturned on appeal. And in the second trial on the charges from 1958... The jury acquitted Chuck Berry. But there was a third trial, a retrial of the Escalante matter, and it didn't go much better than the first. Chuck was again found guilty. This time, the judge went a little easier, three years. After one final unsuccessful appeal, Chuck Berry entered federal prison in early 1962. It took him four years, three trials, and two appeals, but in the end, Frederick Mayer got his man. Arrested on charges of unemployment, he was sitting in the witness stand. The judge's wife called up the district attorney, she said, free that brown-eyed man. If you want your job, you better free that brown-eyed man. 
We're not finished with Chuck, but he will be off stage for a while. Now, we talked a bit in episode two about Paola, uh, but only in passing. So let's stop for a moment and define it. Simply put, it's pay for play, exchanging cash, gifts, or other considerations for airplay. It's a form of commercial bribery or collusion, like using a kickback to secure a contract and gain an unfair edge on the competition. It's not at all an ethical practice, but not every state prohibits commercial bribery and there is no specific federal law against it. But New York State did, and still does have very tough, very specific laws on the books. It's one of the tools the state used to fight organized crime in the 30s and 40s. Alan Freed worked for WABC in New York City. Of course, it is perfectly legal to purchase airtime. Businesses do it all the time. What is illegal is failure to disclose that arrangement to your audience. It started with television. In 1958, Americans learned that many popular TV game shows were rigged. The producers of hit shows like 21 and the $64,000 Question gave the answers in advance to contestants they thought more appealing and telegenic. Again, the problem was not that the show was rigged. It's a show, after all. (laughs) It was the failure to disclose that to the audience. Always quick to seize an opportunity for some moralizing and grandstanding, Congress started investigations in 1959. Late in the year, those investigations turned their attention to payola in radio broadcasting. More about what motivated that decision in a bit. At WABC Radio in New York, the station management got nervous. In fall of 59, they asked all of their on-air staff to sign affidavits affirming that they had not received payola. Alan Freed refused to sign, and he was promptly fired. In February 1960, the state of New York indicted him for commercial bribery. Eventually, Freed entered a guilty plea on two counts and got a suspended sentence and a $2,500 fine. A slap on the wrist, but it was enough to send his career into a sharp downward spiral. The legal travails of Alan Freed are part of a larger story, and we will circle back around to that. But right now, let's look at what's going on in popular music as we open the decade. Nothing good going on, really. The Billboard Top 100 for the year 1960 is grim viewing for rockers. A lot of fluff, not a whole lot of edge. The schmaltzy strings of the Percy Faith Orchestra's theme from a summer place topped the pop charts that year. Um, excuse me just a second. Hey, do you think you could knock that off, please? Thank you. But take heart, fellow rockers. In contrast to the pop charts, the R&B charts for 1960 show some dynamite artists and songs. 
The Drifters, Sam Cooke, Ike and Tina Turner, just to name a few. 1960 will also see the first releases from Motown Records in Detroit. The godfather of soul, James Brown, is getting ready to bust out. Black America is about to reassert itself musically, and people, it's going to kick some ass. But in the spring and summer of 1960, we're mostly back to pasty, white, timid offerings in American popular music. Now, very soon, rock and roll is about to become big, big business. So we need to unpack that a bit right now. I'll let the iconic father of gonzo journalism, Hunter S. Thompson, sum it up. Our music business is a cruel and shallow money trench in a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. I want to say something about us and about our perspective here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. We're fans, unapologetic fans of rock and roll. That's our perspective, that of a fan, not that of an insider or an expert. And fans are romantics. Romantics love hard. They can hate pretty hard, too. Lovers and fighters. Say the last dance for me. Oh, I know that the music's fine like sparkling wine. Go and have your fun. Fans, lovers, romantics. And I'll tell you something else. This fan, this lover, this romantic just fucking hates the recording industry. Well, in more recent years, my hate has simmered down some. Now it's more like contemptuous, uh, dismissive. But I digress. I'll just tell the story, and I think the point will get made. Over the years, the record industry has never altered in character. It just grew bigger and more consolidated. Frederick Dannon wrote that, a central proposition of his 1990 book, Hitmen, Power Brokers, and Fast Money Inside the Music Business. The first big wave of consolidation came at the beginning of the 1960s. Independent labels like Sun, Atlantic, and Chess will get pushed out and bought up by what we will call the big six record companies. Now, throughout the 50s, the indie labels had the jump on signing and recording rock and roll and R&B artists, and they took serious market share away from the bigs. Around 1960, the bigs finally noticed Ignoring rock and roll had cost them dearly in dollars and in opportunities, and they made their move. Don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about a science book, don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you, and I know that if you love me too. And now for a quick and dirty lesson on the record industry in America, circa 1960. I mentioned the big six record companies. Let's stop here and name them, and then later we can shame them. 
in more or less order of size and financial clout, these are the big six record companies in 1960. Warner Brothers, Columbia, EMI, RCA, MCA, Polygram. Now, all of these companies have many subsidiaries, and some of these subs are famous in their own right, like Capital, Mercury, and Arista. Hey, uh, uh, enough. We get the point. Sorry. And there have been many mergers and name changes through the decades. It's hard to keep track. And just to make your headache even worse, in 1960, not all these companies carry these particular names. I'm using the company names that I hope will be familiar to those of us who bought albums and CDs um, back in the ancient days before digital downloads. For those of you who want to untangle the web further, the big six list and research links are in the show notes. For now... We will use the shorthand Big Six to denote the large corporate labels that, starting in 1960, began to crowd out the smaller indie labels that started rock and roll. Atlantic, a few others, managed to hold on for a few more years before they were swallowed up. Motown Records, started in 1960, defied the odds and operated independently well into the 80s. Uh, but these are the rare exceptions. All through the 60s, the little indie labels dropped like flies. If they were lucky, they got bought up. If they weren't, they simply got buried and went bankrupt. <laughs> this sound familiar? Let's recap. Mergers, buyouts, consolidation, muscling out the smaller, more innovative competition, concentrating more and more assets in fewer and fewer hands, and greasing politicians to make it all legal and respectable. In other words, the business model for corporate America. So you know how I feel about the big six. But it's only fair to point out, the guys who ran the little indie labels in the 50s and 60s were not exactly a bunch of Boy Scouts either. You could say the recording industry just traded in the old scoundrels for a new set. Dannon makes that point in his book, and my own research leads me to mostly agree with him. Lanchess, as we have seen, convinced Chuck Berry to give a co-writer's credit for Maybelline to Alan Freed. 
Alan wrote a lot of songs that he didn't really write. A little bit of credit to Leonard Chess. He got Chuck Berry's permission. Didn't just go behind his back. Len sold it to Chuck as a marketing move that would pay off long term. And it did. In episode one, I said most of the black artists who worked with Alan Freed over the years remember him fondly without rancor. And it's largely true, even though, by any objective reckoning, Alan ripped off their royalties. That's because Alan took a cut. But by and large, he earned it. He played their records, got them gigs that paid a whole lot better, opened up a national market for their music. Same with Leonard Chess. Nothing stopped Len. He hustled, schmoozed, cussed people out, and reached into his own pocket to take care of his artists. Hired a defense lawyer for Chuck Berry, paid for rehab for Edda James, and for little Walter, Len bought a casket and hired a preacher. Guys like Alan and Len, flaws and all, were what music industry types call a record man. The record man knows the market. But most of all, he loves the music. At heart, a fan, as well as a talent scout with a knack for the big fine. Now, there were record men and record women working at the Big Six. Damn good ones. Legends like John Hammond at Columbia. But crucially, the record man, even a brilliant one like Hammond, was, at the end of the day, a hireling, not a decision maker. And there's your change of the guard. Starting in 1960, from freewheeling entrepreneurs who play fast and loose, we are now moving to monolithic corporations with a systemic, scientific approach to greed and exploitation. One more piece to the story, which will bring us all the way back around, full circle, to the final chapter of Alan Freed's story. When I shopped for albums as a teenager... I would stand in front of the bins at the record store and study every detail. The art, the lyrics, the liner notes, who wrote the songs, who played on it, all of it. I couldn't get enough of the details and inside stuff. Uh, perhaps you did too. So, have you ever seen the acronyms ASCAP, A-S-C-A-P, or B-M-I in the notes of your favorite albums or CDs? and wondered what the hell is an ASCAP or a BMI? The answer is part of our story. So here goes. ASCAP stands for the American Society of Composers, Arrangers, and Publishers. It was founded in 1914. And until 1940, it was the only game in town. ASCAP has evolved over the years, but the mission is basically unchanged. It serves as the middleman between the owners of songs and the outlets that play those songs for the public. 
live venues, radio, television, and nowadays internet streaming services like Pandora and Spotify. A royalty schedule is negotiated by ASCAP. They collect the money, take a cut, and distribute the rest to the owner of the song. Composers, arrangers, and publishers also pay a membership fee to ASCAP for the service. For a songwriter, it's 50 bucks to join these days, according to ASCAP.com. ASCAP has come under fire over the years for a lack of transparency. What are the exact terms they negotiate, and how big a cut do they really take? It's all very hush-hush. But in fairness, they do aggressively represent the interests of songwriters, and that is a valuable thing to do. So, in 1940, things get interesting. ASCAP informed the National Association of Broadcasters that they intended to double the broadcast royalties for radio airplay. Well, the NAB was understandably furious, so radio programmers and DJs boycotted ASCAP artists and songs, uh, wouldn't play them. They also started a competing organization, Broadcast Music Incorporated, or BMI, which was set up as a cooperative nonprofit. It was not just about money, though. There's a line being drawn here, and it's a familiar line. The color line. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. But that line is about to get blurred. BMI's catalog was dominated by a mix of traditional country songs and race records. Remember that term? For a year or so, while the boycott went on, American radio audiences were exposed, in many cases for the first and only time, to rhythm and blues and country artists, BMI artists, and a lot of listeners loved what they heard. ASCAP gave in, and the boycott ended in 1941. When the war came, everything was on hold. But when things resume right after the war, there is this whole new market for country, blues, and R&B music. And for this new hybrid music that the kids just loved, rock and roll. And we've seen how that played out. ASCAP's hardball tactics backfired badly. The blues had a baby, and they named it rock and roll. And ASCAP was not in the delivery room. Uh, the monopoly was gone. Now there were two competing associations. ASCAP represented the Broadway Hollywood crowd, show tune composers and mainstream white artists like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. And the upstart BMI was the choice of R&B and early rock and roll artists.
early on, the indie labels dominated the rapidly growing rock and roll and R&B markets. That hurt the bottom line for the big six, and by extension, hurt the bottom line for ASCAP. So ASCAP hit back. They had something BMI lacked, political connections. They convinced Congress that only payola could explain the rock and roll craze. I mean, come on, what else could it be? That assertion fit neatly into the prejudices and preconceptions of many Americans. At the urging of ASCAP lobbyists, Congress moved its attention from TV game shows to rock and roll and payola. And in early 1960, Congress amended the Federal Communications Act of 1934 to regulate payola and require disclosure. Now, to be clear, we absolutely agree that the relationship between the recording industry and radio was a sewer of corruption in urgent need of regulation and oversight. But the federal guidelines adopted in 1960 are a joke. And the joke is on us, the fans, and on the artists who make the music we love. More about that in a bit. We're going hopping, we're going hopping today, where things are popping. The Philadelphia way, we're going to drop it. And all the music they play on the bandstands. We're going swinging, we're going to swing in the crowd, and we'll be clinging. Now, as we've seen leading up to that legislation, Congress held hearings. And that brings us back around to a tale of two DJs, Alan Freed and someone we've only met in passing, Dick Clark. And this tale of two DJs is a metaphor for what happens in the music business and in commercial radio from 1960 on. We'll let Frederick Dannon, the author of Hitmen, start it off. Dick Clark and Alan Freed were different sorts. Freed was rumpled, loud, and a drunkard. Clark was the all-American boy. In fact, ABC picked Clark for American Bandstand in 1956 because of his clean image. But if you place their outside interests side by side, Clark and Freed began to look more alike. Freed ruffled feathers and he wouldn't play the game when it came to racial segregation. He refused to play white cover versions of R&B records. He would only spin the original. Clark featured black artists, but at the end of his show, only white artists would mix and dance with the crowd. The black musicians featured on Clark's American Bandstand would get shunted off to one side to sit at an autograph table. Objectively, these two guys were both up to their hips in the same muck, in conflicts of interests and unethical, possibly illegal business practices. But Clark was wise in the ways of self-preservation. He quickly divested himself from direct financial interests in the artists he was playing and promoting. At the hearings, Clark played the part, contrite and apologetic, the committee sent their fair-haired boy on his way with a stern lecture and a wag of the finger. Freed was defiant, confrontational. 
He didn't kiss ass or apologize. His close associations with black artists and his flip-jive-talking style graded especially on the Southern congressmen. So they made Alan Freed the scapegoat for an entire crooked industry. He was buried by bad publicity and buried some more by legal expenses as he fought his case with the state of New York. From 1960 on, he was done as a high-profile DJ and promoter. He got back on the air in Los Angeles in 1962, and that might have served as a platform for a comeback. But Alan's drinking and his personal demons of rage and despair got the better of him. He couldn't hold down a gig. He started drinking himself to death. And on January 20th, 1965, at the age of 43, he succeeded. So scruffy, drunken, and irascible Alan Freed is gone. For all his many faults, Freed was a genuine lover of rock and roll and its young fans. A true romantic. And glib, superficial Dick Clark goes on to fortune and glory. He's a genuine lover of the business opportunities and wealth that will come to him from rock and roll and its young fans. Paola, it never went away. It just got institutionalized, went corporate. The big six successfully lobbied for a gaping loophole in the new law, and they ruthlessly exploited it. Instead of direct Paola, the bigs hired hitmen, independent promoters. The hitmen worked as contractors, providing a flimsy veneer of deniability for the bigs when it came to pay for play. Independent promotion became big business, and the little guys like Chas and Son simply didn't have the resources to compete. Frederick Dannon's book tells the complete story, and it's both fascinating and infuriating to read. If you've ever wondered why good artists can't break through, and why hacks and imitators get record deals and airplay, well, Dannon explains why. In this whole sleazy business of taking away publishing rights and royalties from songwriters, well, across the decades, the big six have put their army of lawyers and lobbyists to work on that, too. And it's become an institutionalized, legally sanctioned practice. When you look at the legal line on a CD, it says copyright 1976 Atlantic Records or copyright 1996 RCA Records. When you look at a book, though, it'll say something like copyright 1999, Susan Faludi or David Foster Wallace. Authors own their books and license them to publishers. And when the contract runs out, writers get their books back. But record companies own our copyrights forever. The system's set up so almost nobody gets paid. That's a quote from a piece Courtney Love wrote about the recording industry published by Salon.com in June of 2000. One more time, gentle listener, I love rock and roll, but holy shit do I ever hate the recording industry. (laughs) 
1960, a grim and difficult year for rock and roll. We took our medicine, so let's go back to talking about some great music and set the stage for some big, big things to come. Now, a lot of folks were saying rock and roll was dead by 1959. Well, it wasn't quite dead, but in America... Rock and roll definitely went into a long hibernation. Well, up until the 60s, the R&B, country, and folk genres were where we find the most interesting and dynamic pop music here in the States. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid Oh, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand Stand by me so darling, darling, stand by right now, in early 60s America, almost all the good stuff is on the R&B charts. And we hear a new fusion of gospel and rhythm and blues, spiced up with a dash of jazz sophistication, soul music. As we said early in the show, Black America is about to reinsert itself musically. And it is awesome. We've already tipped our hand, really. The music clips you've heard in this episode are from the R&B charts of 1960 and 1961. Money by Barrett Strong, the first hit single for Motown Records. Shop Around by The Miracles. The Locomotion by Little Eva. Early Motown Smashes. We also played some cuts from those years by Sam Cooke, The Drifters, Alan Wolfe, and Ray Charles. It was either that or a play, Anita Bryant, Pat Boone, and Bobby Darren gang. Which would you prefer? Yeah, I thought so. All aboard for Night Train! Right now, we're going to get on board the night train and talk about the biggest and most influential soul artist. There are three notable pioneers of soul. Two we've already met, Ray Charles and Little Richard. The third has only been mentioned in passing so far, and we apologize for that. It's an oversight, a big miss. We really should have made it to this guy a lot earlier. James Brown. This is a true rags-to-riches story, 
It begins on May 3, 1933, in Barnwell, South Carolina, along the Georgia-South Carolina border, Georgia-Lina. It's a dreadful place in time. Look throughout the tortured, shameful history of the American South during the Jim Crow era, and this is as bad as you will ever find. Savage racism, openly encouraged by the political leadership, desperate poverty that got even worse with the coming of the Great Depression. Medieval is the term R.J. Smith uses to describe it in the opening chapter of his excellent 2012 biography, The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. James Brown was born to Susie Bailing in a windowless one-room shack in Barnwell. No electricity, no indoor plumbing. James was not breathing when he emerged. Smith writes that while Susie wept, and Minnie blew strong breaths into his lungs until, after infinite minutes, he came to life. From his very first moments in the world, James Brown had to fight to survive. As a small child, he was sickly, lonely, and malnourished. Susie left when he was about four. James had few memories of his mother from his early years. He accompanied his pop to work camps and would stay with aunts or with Joe's girlfriends while his father worked as a turpentine man, harvesting the gum from the slash pine forests. When he was about six or seven, Pop Brown, Aunt Minnie, and young James packed up their meager belongings and walked the 40 miles to Augusta, Georgia. When James was about nine, Joe parked his son at the home of a family member he called Aunt Honey, who ran a brothel. Honey detested James, and the boy would catch numerous beatings from her and Honey's brother, Melvin Scott, a local bootlegger. Pop Brown would also frequently beat his son. At the segregated all-black grammar school James attended, a dedicated teacher named Laura Garvin took an interest in him and his music. She had him sing the national anthem at the start of each day and stage shows for him in the school library. James would recall these performances as the happiest times of his childhood. Let's pause a bit here and just appreciate a woman like Laura Garvin. The young James Brown was a feral child, angry, dangerous. The adults in his life gave him a wide berth or just cracked him one across the chops. Laura got him to drop his guard just a little and found a funny, likable boy with a real talent for music. James didn't catch a lot of breaks as a youngster, but he caught a big one when he was assigned to Laura Garvin's classroom. With the coming of World War II, the U.S. Army opened Fort Gordon, a huge training facility. Augusta was transformed overnight. James got his hustle on, shiny shoes, doing buck dances for crowds of soldiers, selling sandwiches and cream sodas outside the gates during lunch. A steady stream of soldiers patronized Aunt Honey's girls, so at night he worked as a tout, directing them to Aunt Honey's for a piece of the action. Fighting, pimping, hustling, petty crimes, and some not-so-petty crimes kept James Brown alive in Augusta during the war in the early post-war years. Pop Brown shipped out to the Navy in 1943, and around the same time the authorities shut Aunt Honey down. James stopped going to school in the sixth grade and ran the streets. Around that time, as a young teenager, James joined a gang. 
Street life in Augusta toughened the undersized, underfed kid from Barnwell, and by 15, he was a wiry bantam, five foot six, uh, about 140 pounds. He boxed for a bit and played some semi-pro baseball in the early post-war years. But through it all, there was music. Pop Brown got him a second-hand organ from one of his jobs. Busted, but functional, and James took to it. A traveling blues man named of Tampa Red was enamored by one of Aunt Honey's girls. Red took young James under his wing and taught him guitar and showed him how to make music by ear. Augusta was known throughout the South for its outstanding gospel choirs. James was not religious, but he loved the sound, and the authority and charismatic presence of the preachers made an equally strong impression on him. But street life caught up with James Brown, and in the early summer of 1949, at the age of 16, he was arrested and then pleaded guilty to four counts of breaking and entering. He got two to four years at hard labor for each count to be served consecutively. Now they had real, honest-to-goodness, no-kidding chain gangs in Georgia in those days. But James caught a break and managed to avoid that fate. He ended up at a relatively lenient youth facility at an abandoned army base in Decoa, Georgia. Like Chuck Berry did when he was locked up as a youth, James took the opportunity to develop his music. The other prisoners nicknamed him Music Box. He sang in the choir, put together a small vocal group, and was let out of the prison farm on occasion to sing at community events. A Tacoa musician by the name of Bobby Bird kept hearing about this amazing kid they called Music Box. Finally, at a baseball game between the prisoners and a community team, they met, and a lifelong musical partnership began. Bird's family helped James Brown get paroled in June of 1952. Bird had a singing group in Tacoa, the Gospel Starlighters. James became a starlighter, and not long afterwards, they started doing secular music as the Avons. A local preacher told Bird and Brown they had to choose, gospel or secular. They couldn't do both. It wasn't really a choice. The secular gigs paid a lot better. The Avon soon renamed themselves the Famous Flames, and they spent the next three years grinding it out on the Chitlin circuit. Out on the circuit, they crossed paths with Little Richard, who was a regional star by then. James and Richard hit it off, and Richard had his manager make some calls on behalf of the Famous Flames. In early 1956, they got a recording session at King Records in Cincinnati. Please, please, please. Please, 
Please 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 was released by King and hit big on the R&B charts that year. Some of the guys were unpleasantly surprised at seeing James Brown and the Famous Flames printed on the label, um, but nobody quit over it. Everybody knew who called the shots for the Famous Flames. That would be Mr. Dynamite, James Brown. Please, please, please is worth looking at a little closer. James did a lot of covers, but he did write this one. First of all, notice that it's similar to the doo-wop chord progression in 3-4 time. But there's a twist. A change at the end of each phrase. A clear jazz influence. The call and response vocals come from gospel. And the tight breaks, the stops and starts... That's R&B showmanship taken straight off the chitlin' circuit. So in the space of 2 minutes and 45 seconds, you've got pop, jazz, gospel, and R&B all colliding and mashing up. It's very sophisticated songcraft for that time. A little masterpiece. For decades, it was a staple of the live show. Please, please, please is the one where James pretends to collapse and his bandmates throw a cape over him and help him off stage, only to have James fight his way back to the mic, throw off the cape, and deliver another chorus. So James has a hit right out the gate, and it's spectacular. A great song. But then there was a long, long dry spell. James Brown and the Famous Flames toured relentlessly and worked their way off the Chitlin circuit into better venues, finally making it to the Apollo Theater in Harlem by the summer of 1959. But the records were not taking off. Finally, in late 1959, Try Me hit number one on the R&B charts and I Don't Mind charted in 1960, enough to earn James a little slack from King Records, which had been close to dropping him. Pushing it for some time. By 1962, his band was the tightest, punchiest group of musical badasses in all of show business. James Brown and the Famous Flames knocked audiences dead, coast to coast, night after night. If even a little of that magic, that energy could be put into vinyl, well, that would be the breakout, the crossover smash. But Sid Nathan, the owner of King, didn't like the idea. He liked 45s. They were a lot cheaper to press and distribute, and the profit margins were a lot better. A long play live album was a non starter. So James worked even harder, scraped and saved for two years, and financed it himself. He booked the Apollo for a show on October 24th, 1962, and had it recorded. He convinced Nathan to put it out. James Brown's instincts were perfect. Live at the Apollo was an immediate smash. 
it went to number two on the pop charts and well over a million copies were sold in the first year. It was the first of many superstar moments in James Brown's career in music, which would eventually span six decades. The hardest working man in show business, James Brown, ladies and gentlemen. One final stop, and that's back to New York. Yo, taxi! So where are we headed? Um, yeah, uh, Greenwich Village, please. All right, all right, all right. Here you go, buddy. Thank you. Keep the change. On Friday, September 29th, 1961, a 400-word article by Robert Shelton appeared in the New York Times describing a bright new face in folk music. It was a very warm and positive review from a guy who was known as a tough critic. Suze Rotolo bought an early edition copy of the Times at Sheridan Square and with her boyfriend headed across the street to an all-night deli. Together, they excitedly read and reread every word of Shelton's review. Then Suze and her boyfriend, a shy, cryptic, and very, very ambitious young folk singer who called himself Bob Dylan, well, they went back across the street to buy some more copies. And we will pick that story up right away in our very next episode of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. I'm Christian Swain. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you in Episode 5. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Berry. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 